Hello everyone, I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another Red Shirt Friday edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, Greg Dowd, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America and Greg Dowd after 18 years of doing that. I think we're about there. I think we got all issues between rural and urban America solved. Do we have it all worked out? Yeah. Okay. Well, it doesn't seem like it to me, Trent. It seems like it's getting more and more better. <laughs> no, it's not a rural versus urban thing anymore. It's just uh So you are the you, one. I got to I gotta tell you, I think you're right about that because we've talked yeah. about this for 18 years. I know. And actually, I've incorporated this into my entire speaking MO right now. I leave you out because you were the problem to begin with. Remember well, that day on a roll route? And I, this was after some presidential election, and I'm guessing like 2004 is what I think it was. And you said, Trent, you need to look at the vote county by county. This is a rural versus urban thing. And then it continued to grow. And then last year in 2021, when I went on my tour with my partner in crime, Kevin Jenkins, I realized that I'd been part of the problem. I continue to promote the division between rural and urban. We need unity. We need red, white, and blue, not just red or blue. Yeah. No, I, and I, and, and I saw that from this is, uh, this is my 30th year in Washington, D.C., and my standard stump joke is that that means I'm of absolutely no value to anyone in the outside world any longer. <laughs> But in all those years, I've been <laughs> all those years I've been flying back and forth to the farm in Kansas, and you, it's just right there in front of your face. You you see, it's just that people have a different expectation of government. I mean, in in the cities, you you know, the fire and the police and the trash and the whatever it is that government is a is a has a utility. It's it's good. And out in the countryside, for the most part, uh, government doesn't provide any of those things. They're all done either by the private sector or voluntarily, with yeah. the exception of maybe the sheriff. So it's just a different way of, of uh, you know, people's interaction with government. And it's not a good or, you know, I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong. I'm just saying it's different. No, I agree completely. Different mindset. Just, it's yeah. all about the mindset. So because you brought it up, and for folks that are listening, we're actually going to talk about huge records being set. But back in the old days, we never actually talked about the economy until after the first segment. So I thought we'd just try to be old school today. I like that. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> you Are you serious? You've been traveling every week of the year? <clears throat> and you haven't come to see me once. I haven't. I've been in Kansas twice and Florida twice and Fargo and Deadwood and yesterday was Scottsdale and yeah, I don't know, Nashville. I've been all over. Is it true you're trying to get a singing contract and that's why you're traveling around? Going, <laughs> well, you're I'm going to sing I at pubs? Been, I have been singing for my supper. I've been giving speeches. I've been doing my best Trent Luce impersonation. <laughs> How's that working for you? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's uh, the the stump speech, Trent, has been that uh, 
you know, if, if you look at what's going on in agriculture, this is the first time in 30 some years of over 30 years of me looking at these ag markets. I've never seen a situation, whether it's cotton or weed or soybeans or corn or meat, everything is on fire. Everything is, is supply and demand do not balance. The demand exceeds the supply. And everybody's talking about, are we going to have enough of this? And, and then you add on to this, uh, the Chinese demand for corn, the Chinese demand for meat, the La Nina, and renewable green diesel. And and you come to this conclusion, and then, then my the end of my speech, I'm going to give it to you all right now, is there isn't anybody else in the world interested in making this stuff. There's a huge opportunity going forward uh, to make more of this stuff, and, and, and uh, we've got to get after it. And, and all of this new money coming in and technology to do that is the way to do that. And uh, we have an opportunity of a generation here. Don't blow it. You, you left out the biggest hurdle that we have to overcome. Yeah. Federal government. Yeah. And, and there is no question, Trent, that, uh, you know, you, you heard Donald Trump say this, and, and I completely agree with him when he said it when, after he left his first year in the Oval Office. He said, you know, I thought changing our tax law and tax structure and, and reforming our taxes was going to be the biggest thing we did here. And he said, I was wrong. He said it was getting rid of all these regulations that was yeah. the thing we did. And that, that is absolutely fact. Well, I got another one for you, and this one's going to hit you up close and personal. I told him I would not name him, but a friend of mine sent me a note this week that he could not no longer afford a neighboring pasture for his cows. He runs quite a few cows in Kansas. That he that the USDA through the Kansas Department of Agriculture had come in and offered the guy he was leasing grass from twenty dollars an acre to set it idle, not through a CRP program, not through anything that had ever been in existence, but through CCC money. They had these slush funds that come through this trillion dollar spending. And now, since I mentioned it the other day on the air, I had somebody in Montana say, hey, that happened to me. So we're now taking all of this, I'm using air quotes for people listening, stimulus money and stymieing food production. That's happening everywhere. It's not. I don't know about it happening in Nebraska because I talked to my governor about it yesterday. I had a great visit with Governor Ricketts for about a good hour yesterday. And I told him about that happening. And he knew about places like this. This was happening Greg, that's all about crippling the infrastructure of food production. Well, and it isn't just in the U.S. trend. This is, if you look at what's going on in the EU Farm to Fork Initiative, or I would call it the EU Farm to Empty Fork Initiative, Ooh. they, they Ooh. want to... Uh, I'm going to so steal that. Well, everybody, I, I, I've patented it. I trademarked <laughs> it, and, uh, and I, I use it. In my old job, I used it all the time, and the Europeans hated me for it, and I did it twice as often then, just to make the point. <laughs> you know, That's my brother. I, you I, go. <laughs> as I told, I gave a big speech at a big global grain conference in Geneva, Switzerland last fall, and I said, if I say anything nice about the European Commission, it is purely by accident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 
we so they have long talked about, about them putting their people on a path of starvation, and now here we are doing the yeah. same thing. Well, and that's that's uh, exactly right. Is this stuff comes from Europe? The NGOs push it, the activists push it. Next, it goes to California, and then it comes to the rest of us. This has been going on for thirty years, Trent. I know. What's your dog doing, making all that noise? Um, the dog is got real serious issues. Some something got a hold of the dog here a couple of weeks ago, and and twenty two stitches and thousand dollars later. Uh, she's in tough shape, so she's trying to scratch. She, she's scratching an itch. She's she's got a huge problem here. So, but she's coming around. <laughs> All right. Well. All right. I don't, yeah. So, you just got to come see me. I actually had a good meeting with one of your old colleagues yesterday. I saw that. Mm-hmm. I had to rub it in a bit. Yeah, she's uh, she's maybe headed back east here again for a Today. little bit. I don't know what she's thinking. Today, she's not thinking clearly. <laughs> she's going back to D.C., and I'm like, Amelia, what's wrong with you? <laughs> You've got a perfect home. you got a family right here in Nebraska, and you're flying off to D.C. I don't understand. What could possibly be wrong with you? <sighs> it's true. That's and there you've been there for 30 years. Can you believe 30, it's been 30 years? Uh, well, I'm, yeah, 30, 30 years. Only, uh, only a couple of that, uh, sort of inside the beltway. Fortunately, I've been over here about 25 miles east for the rest mm-hmm. of that. And that's the only way you've been able to keep my sanity. But you still have hair. Makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> we will take a break. We'll come back. Greg Dowd. We used to do this once a month. We need to get back to this. This is what the moral of the story is. More. We'll talk about the economy and these record-setting exports after this. We are going to talk about the beef business, and one aspect of the beef business that you need to control is your markets, and I suggest that you become a supplier to the certified Piedmontese system because Lone Creek and Great Plains Beef Company, through certified Piedmontese, has established a tremendous brand recognition, consistently tender every time thanks to the Piedmontese cattle and the myostatin gene. But most importantly to you is the profit because the cost Now, I'm not telling anybody anything. The cost of production of every food item has skyrocketed, so you need to capture every dollar possible when it comes to paying the bills. A premium worthy of the time. Certified Piedmontese details at LungCreekCattleCo.com. Welcome back. Trent, Luce, Greg, Dowd, Roll Route. I, I mentioned that I had a meeting with my governor yesterday that went very well, and he informed me that the Nebraska trade mission to the U.K. and Ireland is back on. It's going to be the third week of August, and so we are getting back in the saddle trying to sell Nebraska food products around the world, Greg. That's good news. That's that's good. I, hear, uh, I just heard USDA saying they're going to go do a big one. In, uh, I think they said, uh, Dubai. And I think that's, uh, so wheels are getting back on the wagons here on all these things. It's, it's a good thing. So good. Uh, well, I've, did the governor tell you he's running for president too? I, I heard that the other day. 
No, he did not tell me that. <laughs> you think he is? He would tell me that. Because <laughs> he'd want me to coordinate his campaign. Oh, okay. I'm just trying to start vicious rumors here, I think. Or <laughs> you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see him today at noon, and I'm going to say, hey, Dad says you're running for president. Why didn't you cut me no? <laughs> We started it right here on this on your program, Trent. We started with we, we got it going here. I'm going to save this one because if he does, we'll we'll claim credit. I think we should. Yeah, yeah. So what's different today? Okay, so we're going to go to my last international trip. By the way, as you know, was in the UK. I came home March the seventh, twenty twenty. And I know what the challenges were. So I'm curious what your opinion is. If we go back in August, how's the climate going to be different talking about trade between the U.S. and the U.K., which is not part of the European Union, just so everybody knows. Ireland is part of the European Union. So, But how do you think the dynamics are going to be different now than they would have been in 2020 when I was there? Well, in a lot of that's a great question, and in my opinion, in a lot of ways, they're exactly the same, and they're still hung up. And we've got, we, I think the UK would love to do a trade agreement with us, and vice versa. But this Ireland, Northern Ireland, UK border situation is just still a mess. Legally, how to deal with all of this is, you know. Part of it's in the EU, part of it isn't. How do you, you know, how do you sort all this out? It's still got them wrapped around the axle. And, and so this, and, and the UK EU relationship is still kind of bogged down there. So that's number one. Nothing really, not a whole lot has changed in that regard. And that's a problem for the US because the UK is still focused on that. Number two, though, is trade promotion authority in the U.S. has expired. And that is the authority that Congress grants the executive branch to negotiate a deal and Congress has to vote it up or down. They can't fiddle with it. Well, no other country is going to negotiate with the U.S. and the U.S. can't negotiate in good faith if Congress can fiddle with the deal after you do it. And so until you have TPA uh, up and running again and, and Congress passes that, uh, you're really going nowhere. And that whole effort has to be spearheaded by the executive branch, by the president. And it's the same thing going on here is went on in the first few years of the Obama administration. Trade is just not a priority. And, and I, it's the party. It isn't just, or I was going to say Obama or Biden or, you know, it, it's just the same playbook. Uh, that they ran and back in the early days there. Nobody in town is surprised by it. It is what it is. And so here we set. One final point I would make is that the trade minister two years ago was Liz Truss. She's now the foreign minister. She's moving up in the world. I wouldn't be surprised to see her move even higher. Mm-hmm. It's an important piece of this, Trent, because she's an Aggie. She used to, as, as a member of the parliament, was very close to the agricultural industry, knows agriculture in the UK and globally extremely well. I've spent some time with her. I really, really like her. I think uh, she's the perfect person uh, to do this deal between the US and the UK when the time comes. So when I was there, and you and I talked about this a lot at the time, 
it was two things with everybody's mind in the UK. And it was front page story when I was there. Chlorinated chicken. We can't get chicken oh, yeah. from the U.S. because chlorine, they chlorinate their chicken. And then the other thing, which, you know, I've spent a career talking about hormones. Yeah. And particularly hormones in beef. And so the reason I bring those two things up is I'm, I'm so anxious to go on this, even though I didn't know I was going until yesterday, and I don't know that I've got it worked out yet. But I, I want to see there's a whole new level of awareness to the global consumer, particularly in the UK, about food, the crippling of the infrastructure of food production, supply chain challenges, grocery stores being short of food. I want to see if they're still worried about nonsense like hormones and beef and chlorinated chicken after they've had a two-year period of time to really sit back and say, your food structure is vulnerable. You better get it where you can. Well, you're exactly right. And I think it has changed to some extent. The media is the one pushing this narrative, though, more mm-hmm. than anything else. They, well, it's, you know, it's always the case. It, right. So it's the old adage, you know, one lawyer in town, he starves to death. Two lawyers in town, they both get rich. They've got to divide and, and, and then play everybody off against each other. Blah, blah, blah. We're sick of it. The U.S. is sick of it. I think the world is sick of it at this point. Um, so the, the answer is on the chlorinated chicken. We have newer technology now than, than those years ago. We do still do some of that, but we do a lot not that way anymore. And what we're really talking about is washing the outside of the bird with basically swimming pool water, if you will. I mean, it's, it's water and chlorine. Well, kind of, kind of one solution. challenge there, Greg, we, we've burned up three chlorine plants in the last three weeks, so we don't have chlorine to use. <laughs> we have. But we, but then we, by the way, and then we wash it off with just regular water after we do that. So it's not really like anybody's, uh, you know, swigging a, a jug of chlorine here. Uh, never been the case. And on the hormone side, I mean, that's just technology that we've been using for what, 60 plus years now. We have it perfected. It works really well. And, and, uh, they, the Europeans know that this is, uh, completely protectionist measure uh, and uh, that argument will probably go on into infinity uh, well but there you go again trying to apply logic and truth to yeah. the media hype and, and yeah. we haven't if we don't if we keep doing that we've proven we haven't learned anything yeah I, I think I think there is a, a lot of truth to that and, and right you God forbid I'm trying to be logical here and, and talk about these things and <laughs> way we talk about them in the United States and in agriculture. But, you know, I I do think this, I think the UK and the UK farmer completely understands that the EU's notion of this farm to fork initiative and and, uh, setting aside acres, cutting back on pesticide use and fertilizer use in huge ways is catastrophic for the EU in terms of the amount of food they're going to produce. The EU in 10 years, if they actually do this, is going to be one of the major grain importers in the world. <clears throat> and, and the UK in no way wants to go down that path. Mm, well, it seems to be a faction that does. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. So I, I think, but I think there's an enormous opportunity. You have to keep in mind what's in it for the UK. Mm-hmm. 
access, unfettered, duty-free access to the best consumers on earth with the biggest pocketbook. This is a huge, huge thing for them to have that kind of access into the, in the U.S. market. And we, we just, you know, we give that away without using it as leverage to say, look, you're going to do business with us. This is the way it's, you know, you, you got to do it a certain way, folks. And there's just, we're not going to give in on that. Well, again, you brought up the word that we have not brought into play often enough, and it was President Donald Trump who really reminded us <clears throat> negotiating is about leverage. And we have not been using the leverage that we have, and that's what you did as ag negotiator for USTR, and what we need to do every single time we go out. Well, and the only way I was able to do that is I had a boss that knew how to use that leverage, and and uh, Robert Lighthizer's methodology was very simple. I, you know, all of his predecessors in history said, "Well, if you don't do this, country X, mm-hmm. we're gonna do something to you. We're gonna take this away." And Bob came in and he said, I'm done doing business that way. And so Country X, if you're not doing things the way you should be doing in terms of our agreements, I'm taking all of your advantages into the U.S. market away from you. So now you have to discuss with me and sit down with me to figure out how you're going to get it back. And the only way you're going to get it back is if you do all these things you're supposed to do. And he did it time after time after time. And time after time after time, Country X was in our office in two weeks saying, what do you want us to do? Rural route. What I want you to do is come back after the break. We'll have more dragged out on a red shirt Friday after this. One of the absolute key elements of healthy living is nitric oxide. What is your nitric oxide level? Get a supplement. The supplement that I take from Dr. Nathan Bryan is NO2U. NO2U, increase your nitric oxide, which improves your immune system. It improves your blood flow, and it improves your critical thinking. What's more important today? NO2U from Dr. Nathan Bryan. Welcome back. Roll route. Trent Luce alongside Greg Dowd coming to us from somewhere south of Annapolis, Maryland. Capital of Maryland, by the way. Uh, so you just referenced this in passing that all of the commodity markets from an export standpoint are on fire. I absolutely loved. In fact, I showed a picture on Across the Pond of your legal pad scribbing notes that you forwarded it to me. Not some printed off graph or chart. This was Greg Dowd, the economist, on the other hand, sharing what the actual record levels were of these commodities. I just love that that image. I actually have it up on my phone right now. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Wait a I'm minute. Ready for whoa, you whoa, here. whoa. You lose something about authenticity when you take a great legal pad <laughs> and then show me a picture right. of it on the phone. That, that's just wrong. You can't do that. All right, let me get the real paper out here for you. <laughs> I mean, this is right this here formulating a ration, but he has here, to take a picture of it. There it you, is. You'll All hear right. me ruffling the papers there. I got them right here. We can. He's digging. <laughs> He's digging like a coal miner in the West Virginia mountains. <laughs> So what do we got? What do you want? Where do you want to go with all this? Well, you tell me what's most important. Obviously, what jumps off is what's going on in China. Yeah. In terms of consuming U.S. commodities. Well, and here's the great debate is, well, you hear all this media narrative. Well, they didn't meet their phase one commitments. And, and that's true. 
because the phase one commitment for agriculture was $80 billion over two years. And so that meant something like, if I remember right, 36 and a half in year one and 43 and a half in, in year two. And they only did $33 billion. Oh. Uh, okay. Only for, only $33 billion. Well, here's the, here's the context of that. The, the agreement says yes. And, and the Chinese made it very clear to me. Yeah. This is aspirational, but the transactions have to be economic. In other words, we're not going to spend more money on U.S. soybeans than Brazilian soybeans just because of this deal. You, you have to be competitive on price. Well, of course, that, that's anybody would expect that. So the first point I would make is, Trent, is did China, in my estimation, do ever do anything uneconomic with regard to this topic? And I watched this very, very closely, in particular in the first six months of this. But, you know, in the, in the first year when I was still at USTR, I was having conversations with everybody at the top of the world in agriculture on a very regular basis, daily or weekly. What are they doing? And my boss was asking and his boss was asking. And, and I will tell you this, everybody. I never saw China do something uneconomic. Everything they did matched the numbers in the market on the day. And, and I think that's important to note. So they, we, we here from 2020 to 2021, we went from 26 and a half to $33 billion. So that's a year to year, six and a half billion dollar increase. How did we do that? What happened? What's different? Did it matter that this deal? And the, and the answer is, before we started these negotiations with the Chinese, we had 1,500 facilities in the U.S. eligible to export products to China. I'm talking about meat processing facilities, infant formulas facilities, pet food facilities, hay processing facilities, 1,500. Today, we have over 4,000 facilities eligible to export their products to China. Keep in mind that the way this works in the world, folks, is that we have a facilities in the U.S. that are approved, but China has to have their own. Every country has facilities that are approved. Typically, the way they do we do this is, let's say, on the dairy side of the equation, the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, tells China, here's the approved list of products and facilities. Forever and a day, for years, five years it would go by, China wouldn't update the list of countries or new products. This is what we fought with them hours and hours and hours in the phase one agreement is, look, here's the deal. And this is the way the deal exists today, folks. FDA sends China a list. China has 30 days to put that list up on their website, unedited, full stop. And if they do not, they're in full breach of the agreement. Period. And what's interesting about that is that China is now doing that. The other interesting thing about that trend is the rest of the world is really mad at us because this is what everybody's wanted to do with China for years. We finally got that sorted out with them. I think the Chinese have been shocked about how many facilities are on that list. Um, but this is how you grow ag exports to China. Now, keep in mind, this is, and this was my argument with the vice minister all the way through this. China today imports something around $160 billion in ag products from the world. 
Last year, our total ag exports to the world were 150 today in 2021, $177 billion, all-time record by a country mile. So the point that I was making during these negotiations is, look, going from 26 out of 160 to 40 out of 160, if we get these facilities approved, get all this stuff squared away, this is a no-brainer. We're going to get there at some point, assuming we have the crops and the economics and everything works out. So beef is worthy worthy of talking because China's never been a good beef consumer of the U.S., and now we see significant things happening. But one has to bring into the equation that with all of these success stories exporting to China and other countries, but right now we're talking about China, we see beef prices at inflationary levels of 20% to the U.S. consumer pork, I believe is at 13%. What's the U.S. consumer think about this while we as farmers, well, by the way, we haven't even talked about how the farmer doesn't get that increase yet, but we'll talk about that later. You said there is yet. Yeah. Um, here, here's the answer to that trend. Generally speaking, what the Chinese are buying are not the same cuts of beef that U.S. consumers buy. Mm-hmm. So we're selling the Chinese short plates and outside skirts. And most of my view listening are going, well, what's that cut? Where does that come from on the carcass? And the answer is precisely. Who are the primary buyers of those cuts? Typically, mostly Japan and a little bit South Korea, historically. Same part of the world. What has the price of short plate done in the last six months, Trent? It's increased by over 50%. And so what you're really now in a bidding contest between the Japanese and the Chinese for that same cut. But here's what's interesting. And if you talk to the Brett Stewart's of the world and the U.S. Meat Export Federation guys in the world, this is the really interesting thing. And this is the conversation with I, I had with the vice minister as well. Once we finally got all this sorted out in terms of the traceability and the hormone issues and all those things. The only thing we didn't get fixed was ripopamine, and that's a long sorted saga. And, and, and I actually understand why that's going to be a really, really, really difficult thing to fix in China because of stuff that goes on there that they can't control. But the, the point being is that historically China bought beef from Brazil. They threw it in a pot, they boiled it, and, and that was that. Today, who's buying U.S. beef? It's 140 million people in China. It's 10% of the population. Uh, that beef is basically the same price as it is in the United States grocery store. The people buying it are actually young, single men in their 20s trying to impress a girl taking her out on a date. And what do they want? They're, the changes in taste and preferences in China are remarkable. From If you hear USMEF and, and Brett tell it. They want the Korean and the Mongolian-style barbecue, just like what the Koreans and the Japanese eat. And they want the beef with the white fat. And it's like, yep, that's exactly right. And that's what's driving this. So, so here's the number. I, When I negotiated this deal a, a couple of years ago, I told my boss, Bob Lighthizer, I said, look, Bob, this is a billion dollars. We've never had access to China, period. Mm -hmm. And as a Jewel County farm boy from Kansas, I've never seen a billion dollars. 
I'm laying down in front of the railroad tracks here. This is a billion-dollar deal. We're going to do a 1,000 tons a week into China, a billion dollars. Trent, I completely whiffed. It's been a 3,000 ton a week market. And when you add China of about 1.6 plus Hong Kong, which you kind of have to add them together now is about a half. Last year, we sold China $2.1 billion in U.S. beef. You weren't even halfway there. I wasn't even close. And this was just, this is just really the first full year in history that we've ever had the market open. Yeah, and I can only imagine it, it just miffs you a tiny bit that recent media articles are giving all of that credit to Biden saying, see, after we get beyond the Trump years, we get good with China. Yeah, you know what? That's <laughs> politics. Let, I don't care about that. <laughs> you got to care about that because it creates impressions that are absolutely wrong. Well, I, again, I, I just want the thing to grow and and continue to prosper. And I really, truly think it will. I, I think this is, uh, to me, and, and, you know, I was the chief economist for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association on December the 23rd, 2003, when we lost every export market in one day. And we didn't have the China market then. Right. And all these years later, the China thing and, and having this thing rock and roll it's always been, you know, this is, you knew where you could take this thing one day, Trent. And, and where did we take it? We sold, we exported, the U.S. exported last year, $10.6 billion worth of beef. That's way more than double what it was on December 2003. And that is the perfect place to say that we will take a break. We've got one segment left. We've talked about the good. Let's evaluate the bad it's not bad it's a challenge and you heard greg dowd say yet being the key word how do we get through yet to there when we return with the final segment on a red shirt friday after this protect the harvest continues to supply information vital information that you need to protect your property rights to be well informed and know where the next attack is coming particularly from the animal rights community you may think that the horses in los angeles the little pony rides that they try to ban, the rodeos that they make illegal, has no impact on you if you live in south-central Tennessee. It affects every single one of us. And what Protect the Harvest does is give you the tools to show you what you can do and bring you more information. You know, knowledge is power, and more importantly, it's factual knowledge that gives you the power. Protect the Harvest is trying to empower you by getting the information to you on a timely basis. it's not, There is no charge. Just go to the website, protecttheharvest.com. Full details about their efforts, I should say our efforts, to protect your American experience, protecttheharvest.com. Welcome back. Roll route, Trent Luce alongside Greg Dowd. And Greg, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, we have to start this last segment with... Uh, uh, memorial thoughts and prayers for the loss of a, a dear friend's father. And I, I, I got to know his dad because I stayed with him once when I spoke for Kip Tom. But yeah. Kip Tom lost his father this week. Um, and, and, and Kip explained the last two days, and it was just exactly how his dad would have wanted him to have gone. doesn't make it any easier. So I just want to extend his prayers to the Tom family. 
northern Indiana. Kip has been a, an ambassador for agriculture and an ambassador for the United States at the United Nations F, uh, uh, FAO. And um, I don't know if you knew that or not, but Greg, but I thought it was a pro- perfect place for us to recognize that. No, I, you know, I got to know him very, very well. We were both in the administration together and, and we're both on the Farm Foundation together and, and uh, just iconic people and, and farmers in U.S. agriculture and, and, and the best kind of people. And, and uh, that's, uh, he should be recognized, no question about it. I stayed in his house, his, Kip Tom's father's house, and uh, I was staying in the basement. And then next morning I came up. I believe I was racing off to Indianapolis to get on a plane. Doesn't matter. And at the top of the stairs, they had a sign. Kip's mom and dad had a sign. It said, it takes a great deal deal of faith to put a seed in the ground and expect everything to work out okay. That fueled me for for a lot of years. Still today, it takes faith. Uh, so, well, we, let's talk about other countries, and then I'm going to come back to the yet statement. But... Well, you talked about China. We have record sales going to other countries at the same time. Yeah, I the uh, the real. I have to tell you the the country that there are two areas in the world they're right south of us in our back door that have surprised me more than any. Yeah, I mean Korea is unbelievable, and that's because we've gotten that tariff down now that it's uh, in, in the low teens, and we're rocking and rolling there. It's taken us a long time to get there, but it's a huge market for us now. Japan is excellent. But the market that for U.S. ag exports that's really shocked me is Mexico. And it's not just beef, but it's everything, Trent. And you think, my goodness, the Mexican economy is not that dynamic. Nothing really exciting going on there. But we have done tremendously well in Mexico. And the other market where we were up, I think, 35%. U.S. ag exports up 35%. In 2021 versus 2020, were the CAFTA countries, Central American countries. Hmm. But we're sending now six. Last year we sent 6.8 billion in ag exports to Central America and the Dominican Republic. That's crazy. That's not that big of a population, but it, it, it tells you what a trade agreement can do and what increased per capita incomes can do. When you when you uh, you know you get it all set up right and, and everything's running on all cylinders. That's that's tremendous to me. So with all this fantastic news about the revenue supplies up at record levels, it's you don't have to talk to three people and you find out how concerned, including myself, how concerned everybody is for where we're at in food production in the United States because they, they can't get apart. They can't uh, – they're not sure we can get fuel. I talked to a fuel wholesaler yesterday from your state of Kansas who said, hey, you don't have your fuel supply, you better get her done because this thing's going to go through the roof. There's so much anxiety with all this good news. Well, and the biggest anxiety to me, Trent, and and it's in the U.S. and it's globally, is the inflationary side of food and the fact that now at these much, much higher price levels, Mm -hmm. our U.S. consumers, and more importantly to me, consumers around the world going to be able to hang in there or are they either as their disposable income gets pinched here with all these higher prices for everything. Uh, does this mean we're, we're going to kind of top out here a little bit in terms of what we're doing? 
I, I don't know the answer to that question yet. I'm watching it very closely. Let me make a point here. In the fourth quarter of last year, folks, China's economy only grew at 4%. That's terrible. That's half of what they usually do. They're not doing, the Chinese economy does not appear to be doing very well at all. And uh, that that's what drives this this thing in terms of global demand for what we do, folks. And if, and if these big folks begin to stall out at these higher prices, then then you have to understand that and just understand that, you know, we've, we've gotten rope as tight as we can get it. In all fairness, you know, I've had this little dabble in Hollywood and I, I, now I have established a level of friends that I thought I would never have. And I share with them. You know, when they start talking to me about these things and you're looking at me like, where the heck is this going? I'm talking about inflationary food prices. He's talking about Hollywood. (laughs) But the reason is until 2020, the American consumer was spending 17 percent of their disposable income on entertainment, 9 percent on food. You got nowhere but to go the down, go up with food costs. But that's your priorities. That's out of whack. Well, but that's the reason we have that is because of the, of the great resources and, and efficiencies and, and the way we do it here, mm-hmm. you know, and, and our, you know, 9% of a much higher number than 9% of a consumer in Central America too. Right. So, yeah. Well, they um, don't spend 17% on entertainment. In Central right. <laughs> that's right. I'm just saying. <laughs> that's a luxury. And we've taken that for granted that it's a luxury. We think it's our right to be able to go to a movie or spend money on it or go to a football game. Ridiculousness right. of the football. How much money is spent at a football game? That's entertainment. Exactly right. Yeah. So um, so what does it take? You said yet. Yeah. That we have not gotten the consumer closer to the f- food producer and vice versa. What, what, what does that take to break through that yet? Well, I'm, I'm let, me, let me walk you through this because I, I want to lead into it. What keeps me up at night right now, Trent, is this La Nina and this drought. And the fact that we, we have back-to-back La Ninas, that the biggest change that I've seen in conversations that I've had, around Christmas time, we thought this La Nina was going to croak out and die probably April, May, June in the U.S., and you have the conversations with these big weather guys now, and they say, no, Greg, it's going through the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. That's not good because that you you see what is going on in Brazil right now with their crops. Uh, last year they had 138 million ton soybean crop. People thought it was going to be 144. The Brazilian government just came out yesterday and said 125. Holy smokes! Yeah, and they've only started. They're only what 20 percent done with their harvest. Um, that means that uh, in terms of soybeans, somebody may be without a chair. Once the, we run out of music here at some point on soybeans, this this is a challenge for us in North America because we're just getting started here, and it's already really, really dry. It makes me nervous. On the cattle side of this, you've got $300 a ton hay prices in Idaho, $220 a ton hay prices in the Dakotas. Ain't nobody expanding a cow herd out there with that going on. So this – and you've got higher – you know, you can't build a new hog barn. You've got hog disease – You've got $6 corn. Uh, everything is on the supply side is, is going to be really uh, trimmed here on, on the meat side of the equation. So you, you've got to see what the demand side is doing. And to your point, 
per capita disposable income tells you exactly what beef demand is going to be. It, you can set your watch by it. And so we have to watch exactly what you're talking about here in terms of what can the U.S. Co- consumer stand in and do uh, with tight supplies. So there have been people trying to eliminate beef from our diet for quite some time. And now we have the perfect storm, perfect storm where media and government and the weather are all working against us. When you talk about the cow herd, because I have friends in Montana, you know, Montana goes through droughts. That's that's nothing new. But this is drought in Montana is and all the way down in, a, you mentioned Idaho, Nevada, that whole region of the country, the, the Great Basin, they're at unprecedented drought levels. A lot of guys, I'm talking a lot of guys, a lot of families have sold 100% of their cows. Usually they reduce by 50%. And Greg, the other factor in that is they're not young men. And so when they sell their cows, they're like, we're not getting back. And and then in Montana, you have this slush fund out of the East Coast, Wall Street, wherever it's from, buying up ranches called APR. And they're, they're accumulating hundreds of thousands of acres and taking it out of beef cattle production. Well, and, and Trent, this isn't just going on in the U S this is going on all around the world is, is uh, if you look at these numbers around the world, and this is the point I make dairy cows are shrinking. The Chinese are trying to rebuild hogs, but they're, you know, nobody else in the Europeans are shrinking on hogs. You name it. There's the, there's no real big boost in supply coming here. And if you look 20 years out at the demand for meat versus the supply, mm-hmm. it just gets further and further and further apart. There is an enormous opportunity here for somebody to step into the middle of this breach. And my thinking, the only place on earth you can really meet that is in North America because you've got the feed and the water and the resources to do it here and the technology. Yeah. So but now everybody, I'm going to go into this yet. What we talked about. Everybody says, well, the market structure is not right and the market's not working. You can say that because of, of the, what you've had going on here for the last several months in terms of front end supply on the cattle side. But I don't think there's any question about it. here's the number trend. Go look, everybody, go look at next year's cattle futures, live cattle futures. April 2023, live cattle, fat cattle. Trent, what are April 2023 live cattle on the CME right now? I hope 240. They're 152 and change. That's not feeders, folks. No, that's, that's fed cattle. Live. And, and well, so, it would be 240 meat price then. So that, and so you could have a situation where the wholesale price comes down and the live price goes up. That's what I will tell you. Most people are kind of expecting here a little bit. Uh, but that at that kind of, and I'm hearing live prices for next year, 170, 180. I don't know that I believe that, but I do believe that that 152 is probably the minimum. Mm-hmm. And, and that is because, to your point, Trent, no cows out there. Well, i tell you another thing, Greg. We can no longer, as producers sit back and expect these dynamics to happen. We need to be driving the ship. Well, you got to, but understand how your market's working too. And, and, and the guys at Kettle Facts and, and the guys at Robble Bank, and there's tons of guys out there in Montana and Dakotas and everywhere else. 
they've got their finger on the pulse in terms of the data and what's going on. And what they're telling you is uh, these margins are going to swing. The pendulum's going to swing here in a really big way this year. And I completely agree with that based upon the numbers. And that will be the final word. We've successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. Greg Dell, myself, remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route.